0: Um, Hi, I'm uh, J.D. Coke, and I uh, was one of the founding uh, board members of Mockingbird, that's my claim to fame here also, and I'm also an ordained Episcopal minister, and I uh, feel compelled to uh, uh, address what we just heard, um, uh, duty-bound, as it were, uh, just briefly, because we, uh, those of us who, uh, well, let me put it this way, I spend my entire life trying to be uh, as clear about what Tim has just said uh, about the state of the current world uh, as as I can be, and I'm not nearly as eloquent or funny, but in my own way, uh, I want people to be very clear about the stakes that we're talking about, and not wishy-washy, and not... Uh, uh, anything other than very clear about this wonderful and terrifying either or to, to borrow from Kierkegaard, but I think Nietzsche also saw that that stands before us and is certainly addressed by the christian faith and It was interesting that you brought up the um, this is not a this is not a rebuttal. I, I loved everything that you said um, but I am the bridge between you and uh, and Ashley and i um, I'm going to do that. <laughs> this is, I have it, I have it tied together in my head. Uh, it, it's written here. I promise. It's interesting you brought up the Lisbon earthquake because if you come to my church and you hear my uh, classes on um, uh, doubt, fear, and the um, uh, sort of creeping, what I say is the. The 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 Marx in particular never appreciated the despair of the aimlessly affluent, which is what we actually see um, manifest all around us, um, and why we have uh, Colorado, uh, of course, and the rest of the state slowly moving towards uh, medicinal marijuana. But the point point of all this, Kant was actually. Uh, young seismologist, budding seismologist who was very impacted by the uh, Lisbon earthquake because it actually began to be the first time that someone at least of his eventual uh, magnitude began to wonder, well wait earthquakes must not just be from God, there must be something underground that causes them, which was in a sense his beginning to, um, to appropriate what ultimately would become religion uh, within the limits of reason alone within that book he has this wonderful quote where he says if we are actually I'm I'm paraphrasing because I didn't know what you were going to say I would have had my footnotes together Um, he said uh, if we actually have any external input meaning something that does not come from us then that would be the salto mortal, the death leap of human reason therefore what must be given to us from God which at this point he would have allowed for is simply what is within us now, it's no surprise that he ended up becoming essentially the prophet of the law because with his uh, understanding uh, of, of, of life that actual the existence of divinity was the fact that humans could somehow uh, reach a moral consensus and then ultimately subjugate themselves and others based upon this divinity that was within. Now this is actually a lot more like Epicurus. Epicurus would have said a similar thing, which was of course 300 years before Jesus came. And the Apostle Paul was preaching in Acts, very much aware of Epicurus, very much aware of the law within, and in a room of spiritual people to the unknown God, he said one simple thing, that which you worship as unknown has been revealed. And we know this because I saw him, and you don't have to take my word for it, you can take the 400 people who saw him, and most importantly, you can take the people who went to their deaths saying, you won't believe this, but when I went to the tomb, it was empty. And that's the either or that we live under because precisely the fact that Christianity does not seem to give us the uh, pie in the sky, all of our heart's desires. We uh, have come to a place where we can speak about nothing other than the cross and the empty tomb. And so that brings me, Bridge, if you can believe it, to the introduction of our next speaker, because I'm not as convinced as you are uh, that people are different um, with respect to their, their doubts and fears about God. I think that perhaps the the culture has allowed for more of a um, um, a, has a a greater allowance for it, but I do believe that when push comes to shove, there has always been a divide between people who have worshipped God as they wanted Him to see, as Forbach says, rightly, or have been captivated by this story about Jesus. And one of the people who was captivated in such a way that he did in fact go to his death by himself. Um, against his own, one would imagine, uh, uh, life plan for his life uh, uh, was the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer um, who may sound like a foreign distant person but for many of us who started Mockingbird very near and dear to our hearts and he was the English reformer who was the architect of the Book of Common Prayer and most importantly one of the people who early on saw this great either-or That either Jesus, God was in Jesus reconciling himself to the world, which then means someday and somehow this too shall pass, or we must somehow pull, fight, drag ourselves up to create meaning and and purpose and ultimately justification on our own, and he went with the former. This was a performance based identity, which was imp- per, uh, totally contrary to what he had been given in the gospel. Now, we are all uh, beneficiaries of that because of our next speaker, the Reverend Canon. Ashley no, Dr. Ashley Knoll, who I thought that would be the only titles I would use in, um, in a conference that is apparently devoted to uh, divesting the importance of any title of all uh, about anything uh, in a good way. So it's, there's an obscenely long list of titles that Ashley um, has earned for himself, and I think the easiest thing to say is you will never probably uh, meet a more uh, accomplished church historian in your life. I think that's a pretty fair thing to say. And one of Ashley's great areas of expertise is, in fact, the English Reformation and the person of Thomas, personal work of Thomas Cranmer. My personal uh, experience with Ashley was as a chaplain to the NFL Europe Berlin Thunder, which remains one of those most six interesting and confusing months of my life. Uh, but, um, but nevertheless, a great joy and a great honor I introduced you um, Ashley, no.
1: I have spent some time. Uh, getting to know a man named Thomas Cramner. And as a result of that, I am often asked, what would Cramner say? And I have the sinking suspicion, David, that the reason why you have paired these talks is that I'm supposed to say, what would Cramner say to Tim. How marvelous it is to listen to the authentic human voice expressing wrestling with heritage and hope, heartbreak and insight, creativity, learning and love, not being afraid to be honest where one stands, not to be honest about the prospects of something better, the fear that won't get better, but to end on the winsome hope that there may be something more than all of us understand, something even greater than the universe that we cannot comprehend that will still lay claim to us and make that love known? That would be Thomas Cramner's answer. And it is the subject of my talk today. But because Cramner would say, it's not about us, but about him, if you would indulge me, And let me open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus today. Amen. Now that you know what you're in for, you can see why poor J.D. was wondering what in the world to do to bridge the two talks. Before I get into talking about Cramner's understanding of the power of the gospel as divine allurement, I think it's important to get a couple of terms clarified. The term unconditional love and the term um, grace. There is a difference between unconditional affirmation and unconditional love. Unconditional affirmation is what your dog gives you. You go away for a vacation for three weeks, board him or her with a vet and come back. The dog doesn't bite your ankle saying, where have you been the last three weeks? Just wags the tail and licks you. Unconditional affirmation never challenges your right to be the center of your own universe. Love is different. Love by its very nature seeks relationship. And in any relationship, the beloved has to give up some measure of autonomy to be able to give some portion away to the lover. That's the nature of love. And if we have perfect unconditional love, perfect self-giving, what would unconditional love seek to woo out of the beloved? An equally selfless self-giving. A complete challenging of the individual's right to be at the center of their own universe. When Cramner talks about the power of unconditional love, don't hear affirmation. Hear dying to false humanity in order to be energized with full true humanity. To lose oneself in loving others because God lost himself in loving us. Two. Two. Grace. One of the interesting things about the Reformation era is that Catholics and Protestants disagreed among so many things, they even disagreed on how to define the terms by which they disagreed. So, for a Protestant, grace is God's unmerited attitude of favor towards you, it's a characteristic of God. For a Roman Catholic, grace is the power of God at work in you that you have to choose to cooperate with, by which you then can begin to earn sufficient uh, standing with God to increase in holiness and uh, eventually be worthy of eternal life in his presence. I'm often asked, why doesn't Cramner talk about the Holy Spirit in his colleagues? He talks about grace in his colleagues. But it's grace as a combination of both Protestant and Roman Catholic understandings. If you're an Anglican, that won't surprise you, will it? For him, grace is the power of the Holy Spirit at work wooing the human heart homeward. It is God's power of love in action within us and then that which empowers us to share that grace, that love in action with others. So with those preliminary definitions, Let's fasten our seatbelts and hear what Thomas Cranmer thinks is the gospel of divine allurement. Of course, the English reformers were a people of the book. They insisted that authentic Christianity give priority to the plain sense of scripture over everything else. The authority of scripture was more important than traditional beliefs like purgatory, pardons, and penance. The authority of scripture was equally more important than deeply cherished devotional practices like praying to saints and burning lights before their images. After the sword of scriptural authority had cut away centuries of error, the Reformers believed that only the simple message of salvation by faith in Christ alone remained. Yet, just because the English Reformers were people of the book, that does not mean they had no heart. Without exception, they were followers of Erasmus. This Dutch scholar rejected medieval theology precisely because its emphasis on debating intricate technicalities made no impact on the actual lives of ordinary people. Instead of useless arguments, Erasmus emphasized that ministers should persuade people through the power of God's word. Since scripture contained, quote, the living image of Christ's most holy mind, unquote, its messages could, mu- could move human feelings deeply. When people heard everything God had done for them, their hearts would be inflamed with a transforming love for God, which would encourage their human wills to choose a life of practical good works. Of course, as more people acted out their Christian faith, society as a whole got better too. The two most, um, in the two most detailed descriptions of the reformers, it's just this kind of heartfelt response to scripture that led to the conversion of the first English Protestants. According to Thomas Bilney, an early martyr, died 1531, burned at the stake, bless his heart. He often, quote, felt a change, unquote, in himself from the right hand of the Most High God when he read Scripture. It happened for the first time while reading Erasmus's New Latin translation of the Bible. Although he had been, quote, allured, unquote, by the edition's reputation for eloquence, he was caught up by what he read. And this is Bill Me. I chanced upon this sentence of Saint Paul: "O oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul! It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced. That Christ Jesus came into the world." to save sinners, of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence, though, through God's instruction working inwardly in my heart, did so gladden it, that which was before wounded by the awareness of my sins, almost to the point of desperation, that immediately I felt a marvelous inner peace, So much so that my bruised bones leapt for joy. After this, the scripture began to be more pleasant to me than honey or the honeycomb. Catherine Parr. Anyone know who Catherine Parr is? Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. She's number six, Henry VIII's surviving widow. She uses the same passionate language to describe her transforming encounter with Scripture. Come to me, all you that labor and are burdened, and I shall refresh you. What gentle, merciful, and comfortable words are these to all sinners. What a most gracious, comfortable, and gentle saying was this, with such pleasant and sweet words to allure his enemies to come to him. When I behold the beneficence, liberality, mercy, and goodness of the Lord, I am encouraged, emboldened, and stirred to ask for such a noble gift as living faith. By this faith I am assured, and by this assurance I feel the remission of my sins. This is that that maketh me bold. This is that that comforteth me. This is that that quencheth all despair. Thus I feel myself to come, as it were, in a new garment before God, and now by his mercy to be taken as just and righteous. I probably don't need to underline the significance of a woman publishing a book of her spiritual autobiography in 1547. It is the only lengthy self-description of an English Protestant conversion that we have from the English Reformation. What were the lines we heard? I felt a supernatural change within gladdened my heart, I felt inner peace, leapt for joy, more pleasant than honey, pleasant and sweet words, I am assured, I feel the remission of my sins, I feel myself in a garment. Plainly, the first English Protestants held head, the book, and heart together. The book's message moves their heart allure this oneness of thought and feeling can be seen in the reformers favorite word to use with the gospel can you guess what that is we've already used it twice allure their favorite word for spreading the faith for evangelism is allure According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word comes from the practice in falconry of casting a meat-laden lure to recall a bird of prey. Such hawking was a pursuit for gentlemen, and thus common recreation amongst the people at the court of Henry VIII. Even Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was a frequent falconer. He was well known to find refreshment after a long study through hawking, for his father made sure that his son was practiced in the sport from youth as a sign of his good birth, despite their relatively modest means. The popularity of falcony meant that allure was often used in early modern writing as a synonym for temptation, to draw someone into sin by baiting their sinful desires. In 1539, a sermon was preached before Henry VIII, which compared personal humility to a sweet, sudden smell hidden in a corner of a room whose aroma allured men to seek out its source. Just think about that for a minute. How often do you think they found sweet-smelling aromas at court when they do cleaning once a year? It was an apt comparison, no doubt, because it was as rare at court to encounter a sweet selling chamber as a humble courtier. Since Erasmus personified persuasion over debate, he often used allure in the same positive sense of drawing people towards virtue. In the Anchoridion, his landmark Renaissance humanist handbook for practical piety, he wrote that the purpose of true learning was, quote, to allure very many to a Christian man's life. Since Erasmus treated the word as a synonym for persuasion, his use of allure carried the connotation of moving people with courtesy, gentleness, pleasures. Therefore, nothing more succinctly in Erasmus' view summarized Jesus' mission. Quote, the Son of Man came forth, minding to stir up this nation to the love of the heavenly doctrine, that he might allure them the more with his gentleness. Because justification by faith also emphasized personal faith, persuasion was just as important to Luther, if not even more so. Therefore, unsurprisingly, Luther also found allure a useful word to describe how Christians were wooed by Christ back to himself. Luther. Thus, when the shepherd finds the sheep lost again, he has no intention of pushing it away in anger once more or throwing it to a hungry wolf. Rather, all his care and concern is directed to alluring it with every possible kindness, treating it with the utmost tenderness he takes the lamb upon his own back, lifting it up and carrying it until he brings the animal all the way home again. For Luther, such gentle handling was the key to people coming to personal faith. Quote, How very kindly and lovingly does the Lord allure all hearts to himself and in this way, He stirs them to believe in him. Unquote. Well, with the endorsement of both Luther and Erasmus, it's only natural that the early English evangelicals would also consider Allure an especially apt term for expressing their understanding of the process of salvation. Firstly, they were well aware that personal belief was naturally a product of individual conviction Not compulsion. So conversion to the truth had to come from persuasive preaching, not just by proclamation and punishment. Richard Tavernard used allure to stress this point in his 1540 Handbook of Sermons. The Romish bishop erreth and doth not, in that he goeth about by violence to draw men to christian faith for besides the preaching of the gospel christ gave nothing in commission unto his disciples so they preached it accordingly to their commission and left it in men's free liberty to come to it or not they said not either believe it or i will kill thee See, the infidels or Turks or Saracens and Jews ought not violently be drawn to our faith, but lovingly rather invited and allured. In his book Against the Bishop of London, John Bale came to the same point, but rather more quickly. The office of a Christian bishop was rather to preach than to punish rather to feed than to famish, rather gently to allure than courageously to rebuke before the world, were he after the order of Christ and his apostles. Secondly, allure can mean persuasion by expressing gentleness and kindness towards the hearer. That, of course, fit precisely with the Protestants' understanding of salvation by grace. Earlier in the same passage, Baal explicitly linked gentleness on God's part with unmerited forgiveness. For the gentle spouse of Christ is ever more ready to forgive though the offense be done 77 times. God freely pardoning all our sins doth allure us all Of whom he hath offended to peace and unity. For both Bilney and Catherine, it was this unexpected offer of immediate, unmerited reconciliation with God that captured their attention. Until that moment when they encountered this good news, neither was searching for God. Bilney was reading his New Testament for eloquence. Catherine was confident in her own penitential works. Yet when they read the divine promises in 1 Timothy and Matthew 11, they both realized, as Catherine wrote, that God used such pleasant and sweet words to allure his enemies to come to him. We have seen this gentle handling of sinners by God, this is the origin of Thomas Cramner's notorious leniency to those who personally wronged him. Shakespeare put it best in the mouth of Henry VIII, do my lord of Canterbury a shrewd turn and he is your friend forever. Do you realize that Cranmer appointed to a suffragan bishop two years after a key ringlinger of a conspiracy that came within a hair's breadth of having him executed, that's the man he promotes as a suffragan bishop. For Cramner, the inherent drawing power of divine free forgiveness was the root of evangelism. Thirdly, the sense of allure includes an appeal to the hearer's own inner longings to feel their faith we've seen this all this already with cramner when he writes about divine gracious love inspiring grateful human love here is the heart of the protestant message love by its very nature seeks union implicit with the offering of the gift of love is a calling a wooing and alluring of the recipient to love in return the initial giver of love. If God loved humanity so much as to endure the cross that they might have assurance of everlasting life with him, to use Cramner's words again, only those with hearts harder than stones would not be moved to love God in return. Catherine was quite clear that this was her experience. Then began I to dwell in God by charity, knowing the loving charity of God in the remission of my sins, that God is charity as St. John Seth. To put it simply but accurately, the Protestant reformers heard the medieval Catholic church saying, you have to earn God's love. You have to perform for God. Your life is a sacrifice by which he will judge whether you are worthy of his love. And the reformer's answer is very simple. Medals have to be earned. Incomes have to be earned. Titles, I can promise you, have to be earned. Love can't be earned if it's earned. It's not love. Thus, for the English reformers to encounter unconditional divine love was discovered something deep within them being touched. An unquenchable, normally unexpected longing for a relationship with one-makers being stirred up. A transforming, grateful human for love for God being gently drawn out. A fervent desire to express this love in all outward actions. Here is the essential difference between the message of the medieval English church and the reformers. Fear of punishment, shame, guilt, duty. They don't have the power to birth love, do they? And if they can't produce a love for God stronger than a love for sin, how can anyone change? Because according to the reformers, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And if people are to change, what they love has to change. And we can only love when we know we've been loved. That's the heart of the gospel for the English reformers. Listen to Thomas Beacon, Cranmer's chaplain. As I may unfeignedly report unto you the affect of my heart, verily since that ye declare to us the goodness of God the Father towards us through Christ, Since then I have felt in my heart such an earnest faith and burning love towards God and his word that methinks a thousand fires could not pluck me away from the love of him. I begin now utterly to condemn, despise, reject, cast out, and set at not all pleasures of this world. Herein I have so greatly rejoiced in times past. All threats of God... All displeasures of God, all the fires and pains of hell, they could never before this day. So allure me to the love of God as you now have done by expressing unto me the exceeding mercy and unspeakable kindness of God towards us wretched sinners insomuch that from now the very heart I desire to know what I may do, that by some means I may show again my heart to be filled and on fire seeking his glory. From now on, I desire nothing more than the advancement of his name. Cremnerian theology in one sentence, divine, gracious love inspires grateful human love. And that love that captures our heart will woo our wills and open up new perspectives for our mind to know what our place is in the universe and God's purpose for us until he makes all things new again. This good news of salvation by transforming grace is what Cramner summed up in the prayer book's comfortable words. Here is the gospel according to Reformation Anglicanism. Anyone here ever heard the comfortable words? Well, praise the Lord, you're going to hear some good news today. Hear what comfortable words our Savior Christ says to all that truly turn to him. Cramner's opening sentence highlights the interconnectedness of gospel, comfort, and Christ. It was, after all, an important point in dispute between Catholics and Protestants. Walk into any medieval parish church and above the chancel arch was a painting... Not of St. George in a helmet, a military field, which must be very interesting for you, Tim. <laughs> what would you see? Jesus as the Lord of Doom, Jesus as Judge. On his left hand, the sinister, all the demons are gobbling up sinners. On his right hand, the angels are taking them up to heaven. Here was the high point of the moralistic strain in late medieval piety, which Eamon Duffy himself admitted could be oppressive. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with English Reformation uh, scholarship, Eamon Duffy absolutely loves the medieval period. He's the great champion of it, and he's fought a 20-year battle to have people reassess it as positive. But according to Eamon Duffy... What is inherent in late medieval English uh, Catholicism? A moralistic strain. That could be, what was Amon's words? Oppressive at times. Every time you come into the church, you see Jesus as the Lord of doom. In Amon's words, churches contain not only the chancel art representation of the day of doom, with its threat of terrifying reckoning down to the last farthing, but wall paintings and windows illustrating the deadly sins, the works of mercy, the commandments, Christ wounded by Sabbath breaking, the figures of the three and living dead, and the dance of death. The whole church shouts, you better be good enough. One of my favorite, I live in Berlin. One of my favorite postcards, which for, interestingly enough is in English, that you can buy in uh, uh, kiosks outside of tourist shops, and it has a picture of Jesus. And it says in English, Jesus is coming. And it has a very German answer. Can you guess what the answer is below? Jesus is coming. Look busy. Some cultural stereotypes are there for a reason. But that's what the medieval church said. Your only hope in the face of Jesus is your busyness. In fact, they had so come to rely on terror, fear, shame, and guilt, and duty to motivate you to love... That purgatory with each increasing century becomes much more threatening. To the point in the 15th century, let me read you just one snippet of what they were told would happen to them. And this is for someone guilty of lying pride. This is for one sin, okay? Then... I thought there was a band bound about his head so fast and sore that the forehead and the back of the head met together. Squashed. The eyes were hanging on the cheeks, the ears as they had been burned with fire. The brains burst out at the nostrils and his ears, the tongue hanging out and the teeth slammed together. The bones in the arms were broken and withered as a rope. It goes on down, but be assured it doesn't get any better. The game of thrones has nothing or the mafia on what God was to do to the normal person and the next life. With such visions of exacting retribution for each human frailty, Duffy had to admit again that the omnipresent threat of terror must have seemed at times oppressive. That the whole machinery, the whole machinery of late medieval piety was designed to shield the soul from Christ's doomsday anger. Remember Taverner and Bale complained about forced obedience through the violence and fear of violence? The bishops were only acting out the cultural expectation of what the bishop's bishop would do when he came back. That's. Not a gospel of divine allurement, is it? For the English reformers, what the people of the land needed to understand, first and foremost, was that Christ was the good shepherd, that he allured back his lost sheep by the power of his self-sacrificing love. Therefore, when Cramner creates his four spiritual promises, everyone heard the four spiritual laws? Oh, how interesting. Here are the four spiritual promises that are at the very heart of what the English Reformation was all about. And he doesn't begin with God's wrath. In fact, he doesn't even begin with God at all. What I fear Tim so often with Christian evangelists is they don't listen to you. They don't listen to your heart. They don't listen to your concerns. They tell you about God and expect you to listen. Is that any way to allure? That's not where Cramner starts. He starts with hurting humanity with its felt needs, its longing for wholeness. He begins with Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Any mention of sin in there? Any mention of judgment? Law? Human misery? That's where we begin. but we don't stop with human misery. What is the next comfortable word? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do we hear law, judgment, Any mention of sin? What do we hear? Divine longing. Divine longing to do what? Divine longing to answer. Human longing. A father's love for his children who do not know his love. In our culture, because of the dissolution of so many marriages, we hear the angst of parents and grandparents cut off from their children and grandchildren. But we have a much larger sounding um, storm in the media of children longing to be loved, feeling cut off from a parent. That longing in human hearts is part of the gospel. It's good news because that's the longing that God wants to answer. We begin with human longing. We see divine longing in response. Well, what's the third comfortable word? And aren't these words comfortable? Hear what St. Paul says. This is a true saying worthy of all men to be received, that Jesus Christ came into the world To save sinners. What's going on now? Oh, I guess we do have sin mentioned now, don't we? But in what context? Does Jesus come to us as a judge? This is a true saying worthy of all men to receive. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save. We don't have to run in shame and hide in the garden because God has come to walk amongst us. He's come not to shame us, but to embrace us. He's come to be shamed on the cross so we don't have to. Why do we need to be saved from our shame? Now we know why we are weary. Now we understand the existential dilemma which we face, that we are created to be in relationship with him, but we push the father away to assert our own self-made identity, And when we separate ourselves from him, not only do we separate ourselves from our true selves, we separate ourselves from others. And as Tim so eloquently made clear, when we know ourselves, we know that we hurt others as much as we love. And we're a package deal. And therefore, that Jesus comes not to shame, but to save. And that that saving will remove our weariness because our heart will find its spiritual home. That gives us hope. You see the shire, human desire, divine desire, human need of salvation, What do you suppose the fourth comfortable word is going to be? We've had salvation from the human point of view. We now are going to have salvation from the divine point of view. Hear also what St. John saith: If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a judge. Is that what it says? He is our advocate. The one that comes in the courtroom to argue that because of him and his shame-bearing we can stand unashamed in the presence of the father and be accepted as his child. But how can he advocate for us? It requires a propitiation, a sacrifice, an enduring of God's wrath. Now that sounds really bad in the 21st century, doesn't it? How can a loving God have wrath? I spent a summer in Uganda um, under uh, um, Idi Amin's successor, Milton Obote. And uh, Amin killed probably 700,000 people. And since he overthrew Obote, when Obote came back, he realized the best way not to be overthrown again is to do even more intensely what Idi Amin did. So about three times as many people got killed under Obote as Amin, but you don't know that because he wasn't a charismatic personality and it doesn't make the pages. But I was in Uganda under Obote. And I realized very quickly that you want a separation between those who do justice and those who don't. If if God doesn't destroy destruction, if he isn't upset by destruction, then the words of Flannery O'Connor, I can only quote her, right? It's a church I can quote her. To hell with it then, right? If God's love doesn't care about all the hurt and harm in this world, and is not able to do anything about it, then it is a massive delusion, isn't it? The wrath of God on Christ is a foretaste of his cleansing of his creation. But in his great love, he wants us not to be swept away but to be with him. And therefore in Christ, we have the assurance that his love will not let us go. That he will make us by loving us as lovely as he is. And one day we will love as purely as we are loved. That our futures are to be eternal splendors, even more magnificent than all those galaxies we have just seen because that's his character and his power and that's the good news and that's at the heart of Anglicanism now Cramner wrote these four sentences put them together but where to put them in the prayer book do you begin at the beginning of the service at the end He puts it right in the middle, right before the priest says, lift up your hearts. Why do you suppose he puts it right before the priest says, lift up your hearts? What human heart can defy the gravity of human anxiety and self-centeredness and look to God unless they have been allured by the good news of the comfortable words whether that message will penetrate in our culture today it is the gospel that changed England and changed my sin sick heart and so many others and as a betting man I would rather wager with the transforming power of the comfortable words than with my own feeble efforts because God is in the business of surprises because that's the nature of divine allurement. Thanks be to God. Amen.